for me, fourth grade brings back like the most trauma. Because in fourth grade, if, it, it, you know, if you're my generation, sissy tests um, and like these epic long spelling tests and the dreaded where did I come from book that you're supposed to read with your parents and uh, squads, gym squads. You know, these things that were like supposed to be these divisions for recreational purposes, which was fine until they came to open squad week. And open squad week was when the, like, inevitably the most popular, most athletic, like, people would get lined up as the captains of the squad, and then the countdown would begin. And, of course, it would go inevitably to, like, the boys who started shaving when they were 10. And, um, you know, they were just gigantic, and, you know, they'd get picked off, and then the really pretty girls would get picked off, and then the halfway athletic boys would get picked off, and then the athletic girls would get picked off, and then the halfway athletic girls would be picked off, and then the leftovers. These people who were, like, left over after the captains had selected everyone they wanted. And in fourth grade, if it was dodgeball, like, my chest would just tighten and my stomach would not up. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And it was me and this kid. Um, in case he listens, I won't say his name. But he had to wear a helmet because his, his, um, he had a soft skull. And we were always, like, the last two. So it was very traumatic for me being the last one picked in fourth grade. Um, but, you know, it's like elementary school. So sometimes, even if you get picked, you at least get to be on the team. Uh, but such is not the case in real life. I mean, in life, we've got job interviews where maybe you've had a job interview, especially in this economy where it's fierce job interviews, and, like, they call you up and they bring you in and they go, you know, just want you to know you interviewed great. You got second. You know, if we had two positions, we'd hire you both. But we've only got one, so we're going to keep your resume on file and, and maybe we'll call you back sometime. And you're like, thanks. Because how am I supposed to pay for my apartment? And uh, the heat bill is coming due. And we live in Minnesota. And uh, how am I supposed to pay for my house? And I have uh, obligations, or I have kids, or I have you know, people I need to take care of. And second doesn't cut it in that realm. In case you were in a hole this week and you didn't watch any of the Chilean miners coming out and some guy sending out two letters to his wife and his mistress... Being second in that category doesn't really fare well either. She decided not to come, the wife. So sometimes second place isn't even good enough. And yet, um, sometimes we are the ones who make others feel like leftovers. Sometimes by the things we do and the things we say, um, you know, sometimes it's really subtle. It, it'll be like invitation only. Or maybe you've gotten a wedding invitation that's just had your name but no guest. And you really wanted to bring someone. And, and they just left that off. Or it's like, this is only for upperclassmen. Or, you know, just our fraternity. Or, you know, all these, these ways that we subtly leave people out. And sometimes, for me, like, if, if, I was, if I was a leftover in elementary school or junior high, then I wanted to work really hard to not be a leftover in high school and in college and beyond. And so, in that process of like trying to earn this place, uh, I think I left people out. And I think we exclude a lot more than we care to admit. And yet the Bible really has a lot to say about this. I mean, in the culture of Jesus, in his time, it really wasn't that different 
than the times we live in. There were huge stratifications of people. The, and if we look at today, we're going to look at this book called Luke, and we're going to see how Jesus treated these people called leftovers and how the religious leaders treated these people called leftovers. And I think that we're going to see some things about what God might say to us in that. So, and what God might say to us individually and what God might say to us as a community. So, um, with that, let's pray and open up the Bible. Um, God, thank you for this time and uh, for this time just set aside to, to look at your word and see what it had to say then and what it has to say now and what it has to say to our lives. So I pray that we'd be attentive and uh, your spirit would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the days of Jesus, the Jewish religious teachers were called rabbis, and, and these rabbis had their own version of squads. Um, first, it was like everyone went to school, and school consisted of memorizing the first five books of the Bible. And so from six years old to ten years old, you'd memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, uh, and then most kids would, would be done and they'd go learn a trade from their parents. But the best of the best of those kids would move on, and they'd go to the next level of school, where from 10 to 14 or 15, they would, they would learn and memorize the rest of the Old Testament, which was like the Jewish scriptures. So Joshua, all the way to Malachi. And if you have your Bible, you can look in it. It's pretty thick. And they would memorize that. And then most people would be done. They'd go, they'd go learn their family trade, maybe learn it from a, a relative if, if their parent didn't do what they were skilled at doing. But the best of the best of the best would go on. And the next level of schooling at 14, 15 years old was when they would apply to study under a rabbi. And these rabbis were generally 30 years old or older, and they had their own set of interpretations of how they viewed the scriptures. And you would apply to do this, and these, these students or disciples would learn the rabbi's interpretation of the Bible, but they'd also learn the rabbi's ways. They'd learn about this person. They'd follow this person. Their goal would be, over the next 15, 20, or more years, to become like that rabbi. And then possibly, at 30 years old, start their own ministry. But So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's about 30 years old, and he's a Jewish rabbi. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 5, if you've got your Bible or if it's on your phone or whatever, you can open it up. And in Luke chapter 5, it says, One day Jesus was preaching on the shores of Galilee. Maybe your Bible says Sea of Gennesaret, same place. Great crowds were pressing in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. So, um, on to this point, um, Jesus has preached in the synagogues. He's preached in, in our version of church, that as a, as a traveling rabbi, he would come into a town and they'd go, Hey, oh, you're new. You come on up. Share. Okay. And they would teach. And he'd go from place to place and do that. But now he seems to be making this little subtle shift in his ministry where now he's like taking it to houses and he's taking it to marketplaces and he's taking it to the shores of a beach where a lot of people obviously weren't at church or synagogue. And so Jesus is there. Great crowds are pressing in. So he grabs the boat. He goes out a ways from shore. The sea comes down, so there's this natural amphitheater and voices echo off the water, so it's a great place to sit in a boat and teach. Now, who is Jesus with? If you look at your Bible, 
It says in verse 3, Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, the boat's owner, to push out from the water, and he sat and taught the crowds with Simon in the boat. So Simon is a fisherman. Simon has met Jesus before. In the chapter before this, probably a few weeks maybe before this, Jesus has healed um, Simon's mother-in-law. His mother-in-law was sick, um, and so Jesus went into the house, healed her, made her well. It was great. Um, Simon has a brother named Andrew. Andrew, several months before this, has seen Jesus on the scene, preaching around. They, Andrew was following this guy, John, who was also uh, kind of a prophet and a rabbi as well. And John's like, this is the guy you need to follow. So Andrew tells Simon, and Simon's paying attention to Jesus. So when Jesus says, hey, can I get in your boat? He goes, sure. No problem. And Simon's in the boat as Jesus sits and teaches the people. And they're amazed at his teaching. Now, if Simon is a fisherman, he's not a rabbi's disciple. Simon's a leftover. We don't know if Simon made it through the first school or made it through the second school, but we know because he's a fisherman, he wasn't picked. He was picked over. He was a leftover. And so he's sitting in this boat with Jesus, and what does he do? Jesus says, uh, hey, put out into deep water. Let's catch some fish. Now, I'm not exactly sure what your translation says, but this is kind of how I read it. Uh, Jesus, you got the rabbi thing down. I got fishing down, okay? Like, we fish all night. We come in at dawn. We set out our nets on the shore to dry. We don't catch fish at 9 a.m. But, okay, fine. You're the master. We'll throw them in. And there's this gigantic catch of fish. Like the boat is coming down. It's sinking. Simon's um, friends named James and John, they fish together. They pull their boat in. They're like, come on, get out here, help us. And in that moment, Simon realizes who Jesus is. And he says, you know what? I can't even be near you because I, I doubt I'm a sinner. I'm, I've been wrong. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, don't be afraid. From now on, I want you to fish for people. Come, come with me. And it says he leaves everything and follows him. Of course he leaves everything. I mean, to be a rabbi's disciple is like the big deal in that culture. It would mean that he wasn't picked over. Of course he'd leave everything, so he follows him. Interesting that Jesus chooses leftovers to be his students. He chooses leftovers to follow him. He chooses leftovers to be like him. And he takes some of the religious roadblocks out of the way by going to a beach rather than staying in the synagogue. Next, it says in, in, the, in the chapter, in one of the villages, he meets a man with an advanced case of leprosy. Not just like leprosy, like I have a little itch on my skin, but an advanced case where like the skin is flaking off and body parts are going to fall off. I mean, this is bad. This is a bad, bad disease. And he, when it says when he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging him to be healed. Lord, if you're willing you can heal me and make me clean. Now, this guy should have been nowhere near Jesus. None. Because in that society, when you had leprosy, you were like, 
you had a big X put on you and you were excommunicated. You were shoved off. You were sent out of town into your own little uh, place. <laughs> Detention center. Um, and you could not leave there. And when you did for food or water, you had to walk out of there shouting, Unclean! 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 So that people around you could back away. Because the religious norm of the time was if you had leprosy, you could not be considered clean. You could not go to synagogue. You were not allowed in. These people were way more than leftovers. So this guy is shouting unclean, or maybe he's not. Maybe he gets up the nerve to go, you know, if I can just get close enough to Jesus to talk to him, I'll ask. And Jesus says, uh, sorry, you're unclean. Can't be near you. That's the religious rules. No. He says, I am willing. Be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Instantly. And it says, I'm willing. And he reached out and touched him. Like I just read over that for years and years and years. This guy, when was the last time he was touched? He's been, if he has an advanced case of leprosy, he's been put into this detention center. We don't know, it could be years, years since he was touched. They do like these studies on Albanian orphans and Rom- Romanian orphans who have spent years of their life not being touched. And they have all kinds of neurological damage because our, we're supposed to have a human connection. When was the last guy this guy reached out and touched him? Which would have made Jesus uh, ceremonial unclean, by the way. And, and Jesus takes this religious roadblock out of the way. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. Don't tell anyone. Go show yourself to the priest. The priest will announce you clean. You can be reinstated into society. You can have community again. The thing that kept you from being in a community has now been removed. Jesus cared so much about people. And he, he, he was so, I think, incensed with the religious roadblocks that were put up that made people feel like leftovers that he removed that. If that's not enough, we'll just keep going because it's pretty cool. So the next thing, he goes, one day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. Jesus has made a reputation. He's making the headlines. So religious leaders are coming to check him out. He's not in the synagogue, by the way. He's sitting in a house. And some men carrying a paralyzed man were sitting on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him into Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. Okay, so if you're a paralyzed person, or if you have some kind of physical disability in that culture, it meant that you or your parents were sinners. And if you or your parents were sinners, guess where you weren't going? Are you catching what we're, what we're getting at here? You couldn't go to synagogue. The very place where you're supposed to get healing, they kept you from. So the fishermen, they were staying out all night. And they were drying their nets in the morning. And where were they at 9 a.m. when synagogue started for morning synagogue? They weren't there. They were drying out their, their fishing nets on the beach. And the, the leper wasn't allowed into synagogue. And now the paralyzed man, he's being called a sinner because, you know, that's what they thought. So he's not going to synagogue. And what does Jesus do? Excuse me. 
you're interrupting my teaching. No, he doesn't. And by the way, you can interrupt me. Unless I'm in the middle of a good story, you can interrupt me and ask questions. That's okay. No. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, why would he say that? So many reasons, but let's just pick a couple. Number one, if he's a paralyzed man, they already think he's a sinner. So he says, your sins are forgiven. To remove the religious roadblock there that's keeping him in this like leftover category. Number two, uh, the religious leaders freak out about it. What do you mean? What are we doing? You can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. Well, what do you think is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk because he's paralyzed so, uh, so that you'll know that I have the authority to do this. I'll tell you, get up and walk. And he, he, he jumps up and he praises God. And everyone says we've seen amazing things today. Jesus calls leftovers the last in society. Jesus calls lepers who are kind of the least of society. Jesus even calls a paralyzed man out and removes this obstacle, this religious roadblock that keeps him from faith in who Jesus truly is. Not, not faith in a system or a religious system, but faith in Jesus. After this same day, Luke goes on and says, Jesus left the town, and as he was leaving, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax collector's booth. And Jesus looks at him and says, follow me, be my disciple. This is the rabbi who's got fishermen as disciples now, and now the next guy he picks is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors are like giant, I mean, you can't, get a worse person. So I was trying to think of, of what would be an equivalent to us. And the only thing I could come up with was a human trafficker. I mean, the, 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 the evil, the, I mean, if you've ever studied human trafficking that goes on like right here in the United States, that goes on right here at the Mall of America, that goes on where people literally are buying and using and selling humans. And that just like, it just hits my gut. It makes me incensed. That's how people of Jesus' day viewed the tax collectors. They were like these giant sellouts to this country that occupied them, the Roman Empire. And basically, the Roman Empire would say, who wants to be a tax collector? And if you got picked, guess what? Okay, Rome, how much money do you need? 5%? Okay, we'll get you 5%. And then you could just add on whatever you wanted to make money. So the tax collector went, mm, mm, taxes are 10% this month. And Rome wanted five, you got 10. Or you got another five. If Rome said, ah, th- you know, this month, you know, we only need 3%. Okay, it's still 10%. Uh, oh, well, big, huge tax increase, it's 10%. Oh, sorry, guys, uh, it's 15, it's 20. It's, 20 per- it's 25%. There's not a thing that, the, that these people could do, these Israelites or these Jews could do, to say anything about the tax collectors. They had to pay, otherwise the Roman soldiers would come and take them away. So these people hated, hated, hated isn't even a strong enough word. They hated these people, these tax collectors. They considered them to be the the betrayers of their own brothers. And they definitely, definitely didn't go where? To synagogue. There's huge roadblocks there. And so Jesus says, come and be my disciple. Now think about the money that Levi or Matthew was leaving. Okay. Left everything. 
I get a chance to be a follower of, of this Jesus, this rabbi. I get a chance to come back into this faith that I've sold out from. I'll take it. And he is pumped. He holds a banquet. He has this huge dinner with Jesus as the guest of honor. And of course, who are Levi's friends if he's not going to synagogue? Other tax collectors and other people who would fall into the tax collector booth. So you can just pick your you know, worst sins and they're probably, they probably showed up at Levi's party. And Jesus gets invited to this party. And Jesus goes. And it says at the end of Matthew or at the end of Luke five, many of Levi's tax collectors and other guests also ate with them, but the Pharisees or the religious leaders complained bitterly to Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Now I always just said, Oh yeah, it's because they're just horrible. They're just horrible people. These religious leaders are just corrupt, they're horrible. Um, maybe they were a little corrupt, but they really wanted people to follow God. So if Jesus was getting people to follow God, why did they have such a huge time with this? I just figured this out in this book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. Here's what they say about eating meals with someone. For the people of Israel, the table was much more than a place to eat. It was a place of mutual trust and vulnerability. Sitting down at the same table with someone meant that you shared a protected relationship with them. Whom you ate with revealed something important about who you were, showing to whom you belonged. So in, um, in the Bible, they, they use this word house to mean like uh, a extended family. Well, they use table to mean like intimate family and friends. And basically by Jesus eating with them, he was saying, these people are my intimate family and friends. And the religious leaders could not handle it. They could not stand it. And his response to them was, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. So I haven't come to call those who think that they're all right with God. I've come to call people who, who know they need God. And Jesus continues to accept anyone and everyone. We could just keep going until a Vikings game. We could just keep going story after story about how Jesus like picks off these people and he says, yeah, come, or yeah, healed, or yeah, I'll remove the religious roadblock. One by one by one. He calls these people, anyone that's responsive, it's, it's the last, it's the lost, it's the least, it's these leftovers that gives me hope, by the way. Because <laughs> every week, I get so excited for this day and I'm like super excited right now, but like, on Thursday, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just, God, why, why do you even use me? Why? I mean, if people knew who I really was and knew that I was insecure, that I got crabby with my kids, or, and that I was human, would you still want me? And then I read stuff like this, and I go, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, this, this youth ministry hero from the 70s, his name's Mike Iaconelli, he says this. The grace of God is dangerous. It's lavish, it's excessive, it's outrageous, it's scandalous. It means God, God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. He says, apparently God doesn't care who he loves. He's not very careful about the people he calls his friends or the people he calls his church. 
Isn't that awesome? Like, that gives me such hope. Apparently, God doesn't care who he loves. He's not very careful about the people he calls his church and the people he calls his friends. And Jesus completely exemplifies that. If you want to know God, study Jesus. That's why, like, as we start this community called Restoration, um, that's why one of the things we talk about in our values is, like, being an accepting community. It doesn't mean, like, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. We don't care. No, we think God does care. But we think that you probably know what's right and what's wrong anyway. So we don't need to point it out to you. Nobody pointed out to, to Simon, also known as Peter, when, when Jesus had this huge miracle of fish. Nobody pointed out like, hey, Peter, you're a sinner. But what does Peter say when he gets this new glimpse of Jesus? Oh, you know, I, I'm wrong. I think as people get more of an understanding of who Jesus is, they get more of an understanding of who they are. Nobody needs to point it out. So when we talk about being an accepting community, we talk about this, being ridiculously inclusive. To the point where we scratch our head and go, really? God saved them? (laughs) You don't know what they do. I know what they do. Well, yeah, but I know what you do too. And we want this idea that anybody can come. We were, I was just talking to a friend of mine that said, uh, yeah, I invited someone to church, but, but, uh, but this person said, well, you know, I don't really have time in the morning to get dressed up. And, uh, and my friend was in sweats, and she goes, that's okay, I wear this. We, it doesn't matter what you wear. It, it matters what's in, in your heart. It matters where you think you are with, with God. That's the kind of community that we want to be, especially not just in here, but especially when we leave here. When, when church or the, the reign of God happens outside of this place, who are we spending time with? Which roadblocks are we removing for people to come to faith in Jesus? That's, that's what we want to be about. And maybe, maybe you're a person that's felt like leftovers like I have. Um, and maybe you've decided, I don't want to feel like leftovers, so instead I'm just going to work my tail off. I'm going to earn people's respect. I'm going to earn people's values. I'm going to earn like a relationship with God. Don't Trust me, don't bother. I've tried. It doesn't work. God doesn't care. He loves us so much. We can't make God love us more no matter how much good we do. And no matter how much bad we do, we can't make God love us less. He just ultimately, unconditionally loves us. Now, if we're in a pile of crud, he doesn't want us to stay there. But he just loves and he loves and he loves. And it is this ridiculously inclusive love. And that's the kind of Jesus that I want to follow. And if you've never known this picture of Jesus, and you never understood, like, would Jesus really accept me? Maybe you haven't had leprosy and you don't know what it's like to be completely alone. And, and maybe you haven't been demon-possessed like Jesus hung out with a lot of those people, but you know what it's like to have been oppressed. Then, then this is the Jesus that I just I want you to get to know. Not because not you need to stay here, not because you need to become a part of this place, although we'd love to have you, but because Jesus just continues to reach out and to love, and to accept, and to forgive anyone, anyone. So we thought about, like, okay, what would be a great 
way to experience that acceptance? What would be an appropriate way to do that? And, and the, the thing that the church has done through the years and years and years and years is called communion. And the, the significance of communion is, is completely multilayered, but one of the things that, that I want to just hit today is this idea that it's a communion table. Remember when Jesus went to the tax collectors and the sinners and the scum and he sat at their table, rather lie, reclined at their table, but he said, this is a place of protection. It's a place of acceptance. I am in a deep relationship. You are a friend. You are intimate family. So we have some communion places on the sides here. And in a few minutes, we're going to have communion. And it's that idea of the table, where when you walk up to that table and people say these words that Jesus said so many years ago when he was hanging out with his disciples before he was killed, he took this cup of wine and juice and he took this bread and he sat with his disciples and he said this, this bread is like my body. It's broken for you. I'm, I'm committed to you. We're in relationship together. Take and eat it. Accept me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is it's like my blood. But it marks the new covenant. Not an old covenant where you had to earn by keeping the law, but this new covenant that I unconditionally love that you just have to accept. Take and drink, all of you. It's an acceptance. So as we take this communion, we're, we're going to have it on the sides. You don't have to do it. You can take the chunks of bread, dip it in the wine. There's going to be people that will serve you in just a minute. And again, it's on the edges. Go as the Lord leads you. If you're uncomfortable or if you've never done it before, if you still have questions, you don't have to do it. Um, there's going to be people back there if you want to pray with someone before, during, or after. We'll have some worship. But, but see communion in this new light of this table of acceptance. That God wants to accept you, and he wants you to then accept others in this ridiculously inclusive way. So let's pray and, and partake in communion. God, I thank you for this really powerful example, Jesus, of how you just continue to accept and accept and accept and accept and accept and accept and heal and teach and, and go to places where people aren't hearing, go to places where people aren't accepting. I pray that we could look at our own lives, not just do you accept us, but do we accept others? Do we pick and choose those we want to spend time with? Do we get annoyed and discouraged because we have to spend time with people that we don't really like, that we see as leftovers? Oh, God, would you forgive us for that? As we, as we take part in, in this table, God, of the bread and the wine, would we help us to realize, God, that you do accept us? And that you do forgive us. So we pray that, that we would just have a time of intimate relationship with you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.